Secrets of a Serial Killer. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Secrets of a Serial Killer. Today, we'll be doing Todd Cohelp. Cohelp? Cohelp. Of course, I messed it up. (laughs) And as well as the Toy Box Killer, David Parker Ray. Cool. And I always give, I always laugh at that one because it sounds like three first names. David Michael Parker Ray. Ray. David, I'd say Parker. Michael David Parker Ray. Come on yeah. in. Yeah. Okay. So um, I guess I'm going to do mine first. So mine is uh, Todd Colehelp. And he is actually a, a fairly recent killer. I know a lot of times I like to do some throwbacks, but this one, he's uh, he's one that was caught, you know, fairly recently in, in, in prison now. So um they actually called him um the kill devil in a chain and so he actually got that name um from a neighbor so i and i'll cover all that but i'm going to try to do this in a chronological order although most people start at the now and go back i'm trying to keep up with that so um todd Colehep is a mass murderer and a serial killer he was born in 1971 around july um, and the funny thing to me is that he was born to William Sampsell and Regina Tague. So I was like, at first, I was trying to figure out how he was Colehip. Um, but the, the reason why is because um, William and Regina divorced when he was two. And so he was actually adopted by his stepdad, who was a Colehip. And so that's why he is Todd Colehip. Um, now, of course, he describes his childhood as being horrible and everything, but there were some dysfunctional things in his childhood. Um, they moved around a lot, and um, of course, he had the, the parents were divorced at an early age. Supposedly, he had an abusive grandfather that they lived with. Um, what really sticks out at me is that he, his parents described him as having violent behavior like towards animals and other kids and and that kind of thing and he actually had some time in a mental health facility um so mm, there's that now he lived with his mom and stepdad until they divorced in 1982 so in 1982 he moved to tempe arizona with his biological dad who he'd not had a relationship with um so his bio dad um um, allowed him to stay with him and he I guess he was there about two years and so this was like 1980 actually it was I think it was 1986 so about four years so he was there about four years and we don't know of any crimes that he committed during that time but when he was 15 it was 1986 or actually October of 1986 we know that's when he started you know doing his crimes or it's just his life of crime so at 15 years old he had a girl that he liked named Christy. Now I watched a documentary on Christy. Christy is still um, traumatized by what happened to her as a child. So Christy is, was 14 and she was babysitting her um, younger siblings. And I want to say they were like toddler age <clears throat> siblings and her parents were at work. And um, Todd Cohep, who she went to school with and she knew him. He was a neighbor. He was not, he lived just a couple houses down, came to her house. And he, he told her that um, a boy that she liked was down around the corner waiting and he wanted to talk to her and see her. And um, so he was trying to like lure her outside and she was like, no, I can't leave. 
um, my, I'm babysitting and everything else. Um, he said, well, you know, I just need you to come out for a few minutes. And he just was, he was just like continually like trying to get her to come outside. Well, she refused. Well, the last time she opened the door to him, he put a gun in her face and told her that she needed to come with him. So good thing her siblings were asleep already. She, um, he led her down the alleyway that went behind their houses um, and into his home and into a bedroom there at, at his home where he used, I want to say, yeah, it was actually duct tape and that would freak me out. So he used duct tape on her mouth. Um, and, and I want to say that he gagged her and then, you know, put their duct tape on and then bound her. So she describes him being is very, like very, um, inept. Like he didn't really know what he was doing. I mean, he was, he was going to rape her, but he, he like didn't know what, you know, what he was doing with it was fumbling all around. And as she made a comment, you know, because I guess she's just mad or whatever, um, that he didn't know what he was doing and it angered him. So when he was finished raping her, he told her basically that if she ever told anybody that he would come and kill her siblings. And then, like I said, they were young siblings too. And so he actually, um, let her go and she went home. And of course she immediately told him, um, you know, that, um, she was, had been raped and he went to prison for that for 15 years. So what he was done is he was actually, he was going to be charged with kidnapping and sexual assault. So of course he's 15, he's charged as an adult and they actually gave him a plea bargain, which I thought was kind of crappy, but that if he pled guilty to kidnapping, they were going to drop the sexual assault charge, um, which stinks. But he got 15 years in prison and he served those 15 years in adult prison. Uh, during that time, that he was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which basically fits um, for real this. Now, after this time period, he comes out a felon. He lies about his felony. He gets a degree. I want, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe he get, goes to school, gets a degree. But he decides he wants to sell real estate. So he gets his real estate license. And when you get your real estate license, you have to not have a criminal background. Don't know how in the world this wasn't, you know, found. But they gave him a real estate license. And he actually did really well at a re being a real estate agent. So well, that he actually opened up his own um, real estate office and hired people under him. Now, he was making good money and he was very successful he was well known in his um town now this time he's back in south carolina after he comes out of prison and, and that's where he's basically started back over so his first transgression and the crime was in tempe arizona now he's in south carolina so nobody really hears much from him other than the fact that he's um very successful um real estate agent okay so what happened was when everything kind of came to light, no one knew what he was doing. He was not caught in anything until um, Spartansburg, South Carolina. Um, he owned some land. So there was a couple named Kayla Brown and Charlie Carver who were actually missing for, I think, 65 days. Prior to, I want to say it was about a month or so in, maybe two months, 
they actually were able to obtain their cell records. So a lot of times when it's a missing person and it takes a while for the police to even get that information. So they were actually able to get the ping information to um, Charlie and Kayla's phone and were able to figure out that they were in the area of this plot of land um, that was owned by Todd Kohep. So police went to that land and um, well, actually it was two sets. So the police from South Carolina investigators, half of them went to um, Todd Kohelp's house to kind of just talk to him. And they really thought that they were just going to, you know, find out about this missing person, missing persons, both of them. And half of them went to Todd's property which was, I think, about 95-acre property. Um, I saw the documentary. It had a, a, a garage with, like, an apartment above it. There was a Connex box and maybe, like, one or two small outbuildings. So there wasn't an actual house on the property as of yet. Um, they go to the property. They search the property. Um, and they're at this Connex box, which, you know, are the boxes that – um, travel on trucks. They're also on ships, and they <clears throat> are noticing there's a big lock on the Connex box, and they're trying to figure out, like, okay, well, we're gonna open this box and see what's in it. Well, the one of the officers decided to bang on it. Now, this is all on um, one of the officers' um, body cam footage, which is really great that we get to see this. In real time, they're all just kind of looking at each other. One of them bangs on it and they hear someone bang back. And the officers are like, oh my gosh, somebody's in there. So they get out the chop saw and they get this lock off and they get the thing, the Connex box open and they see Kayla Brown, who is the missing woman. Um, and she is literally in the Connex box. Now, at the same time, investigators are at Todd's house he's got a big two-story brick home and they're speaking with him and they're basically asking him about you know where is where's Charlie and Kayla and he's he you know he's trying to play it off saying he doesn't know and that they came there um that they were doing some work for him cleaning his properties and everything and that they left and they knew that was not right because they had um their phone information from actually after that so he they knew that they didn't leave there when he said so they're sitting there talking with Todd and all of a sudden the investigators call him and they say um we're gonna need to you're gonna need to talk to him a little longer he we're gonna have an arrest warrant for him and the uh, the investigators like what and that's when they tell him that they have found Caleb Brown in the Connex box, she is um, being held by chains that are attached to the wall. She has a dog collar around her, her neck. She's actually laying on dog beds. Um, and she has been held there for the whole 65 days that, um, that she's been missing. And so they are just astounded. And what Kayla tells them is as soon as they get her, um, you know, the chains cut off of her because that's what they had to do. She just starts talking and she tells them. Um, Charlie was her boyfriend. Um, 
Todd Colehep shot Charlie three times in the chest and rolled Charlie up in the blue tarp, put him on the tractor, and I've not seen him again. Um, and then she tells him, you know, that um, he he told her that he had killed other people and that he had actually killed people at um, a um, motorcycle shop. And so she's just, just letting all these things out that Todd had told her during her time. So they start searching for a grave, you know, a, a freshly dug grave to see if they can locate Charlie Carver. Well, what they do find is Charlie's car. So the car has actually been um, spray painted a darker color. His car was a white car. I think it was like a Grand Am, Pontiac Grand Am or something like that. It had been pushed into the woods, spray painted a dark color and covered with a bunch of branches so it wouldn't be seen. Um, and so they knew at that point that, that they were on the right track of finding Charlie. Not very long after that, they located a freshly dug grave uh, mound. And beside it was actually an empty hole that hadn't been dug, you know, hadn't been um, dug very long before that. And they think, oh, my goodness, we're so glad we got here. when we did. This could have very well belonged to Kayla. You know, it could have been the one that he was going to kill her and put her in that grave. So... <clears throat> Todd is taken into custody and <laughs> where he, when he goes into custody and he's being um, interrogated, he knows at this point that Kayla has told on him. So he knows there's no reason basically to lie. And, and he's a pompous, you know, tale anyway. He really uh, thinks a lot of himself. He, um, he is a prolific liar. In fact, you can't believe anything he really says um, from what I've been reading about him um, is that, you know, he says one thing and then he changes it. It's, you know, fitting for him. So um, he goes ahead and tells them, well, I've got some more bodies. I buried out on my property and he is just, I watched in the investigation and the interrogation of him and basically, he's telling the guys, oh, yeah, I want it to be my slice of heaven, but end up being my killing field. And he's just, you know, just so proud of himself. And then he tells them, well, I killed Johnny and Megan Coxie, which Johnny and Megan Coxie had actually been missing since summer of 2015. So over a year, they didn't know what happened to them. So we never really know exactly what happened to them other than Todd um said well i killed them and he goes on to say that um he had them cleaning his rental properties and that um he you know they came there one day and johnny pulled a knife on him and he just had to shoot him and then he of course doesn't want to admit that he held megan um like he did kayla in the connex box um, so that he could repeatedly rape her and sexually assault her. But they're pretty sure that that also occurred and that Megan, Johnny died first. And then Megan, of course, was killed um, probably not long after. And then their, their bodies are actually on that property too. So Kayla had mentioned to police, um, like I said earlier, that um, Todd had told them that he killed some people in a motorcycle shop. Okay, so they immediately know what Todd's talking about. So they ask him about it. And Todd goes on to say, oh yeah, 
and I, I not only killed you know Charlie and Megan and Johnny but I also am going to solve another um crime for you guys and he is you know he just acts like he's doing the police a favor almost like he's on the same level as them um and so he goes on to tell them that he actually killed um a all four people that were murdered in a cold case that they had and i was trying to remember what the name give me just a sec. the i want to say it's um dang it i can't remember exactly what the name of the motorcycle shop was but what happened it happened in 2003 and um it's so it was a family-owned motorcycle shop and the it was four people working there that day. So there was a mother, the owner, the manager, and then the mechanic. Um, so he goes in there and supposedly murders all four of them. And so this was an unsolved mystery. And so he um, was basically saying he, he was responsible for it. The one thing that he tells them was that he shot them all in the head. And so the police are convinced that he's he's the he's definitely their killer that they've been searching for since 2003 because he knew that one you know little thing that nobody else would have known um because it you know they were shot in the head now the bizarre part of it was he goes on to tell them oh yeah i cleared that building in 30 seconds or less you guys would have been real proud of me to the investigators and the investigators are like okay you know because no one's proud of him. He, he's a serial killer. He's obviously got some mental health issues and some major violent tendencies. Like why in the world would they be, you know, um, proud of him? But the problem was, was there was no DNA or fingerprints at that crime scene that happened. Um, and so it was never solved. And so that basically they um, closed the place up and it's actually in one of the documentaries that I watched, it actually, you actually see the place. It's really sad. Um, they had an FBI profile that came in and, you know, was trying to help them solve the case. And the funny part about it, not funny, haha, but funny, weird, is that he gives a profile of the person that he thinks committed these murders. And he says basically that they were a disgruntled, um, probably someone that bought something from there but a disgruntled um, client or customer and that they weren't really pissed off at one particular person, that they were probably pissed off at um, the company and that he, they basically uh, were making a statement and it was a revenge killer and, and all these things. So, you know, they didn't know at this time when they were saying that, Okay, it was at a place called Superbike. Um, that, that's what makes it important. Nick, can you hear me just fine? Yeah, I can hear you. Huh. My headphones are kind of weakly wackly. Sorry about that. Okay, so it was at Superbike, and this FBI profile fits Todd to a T. Because what he basically said, which is kind of funny, he basically says that he goes into the shop. He buys a motorcycle from him. He doesn't know how to ride it very well. He goes into the shop because his motorcycle was stolen. 
And he says that the people there made fun of him. And we're talking about a grown woman and three men that are running the business. I hardly believe that they made fun of him, but it made him mad. And so he decided he was going to go back in there and shoot them. And that's kind of how he handled things. He basically, um, uh, when people pissed him off or he wanted them to act a certain way, he would, you know, try to control them with violence. So that's kind of what he would do. But he did go in there and kill them all. And I'm sorry, I'm having some technical difficulties here. Okay, there we go. He, he did go in there and kill them all, according to him anyway. So he goes on and... Um, the, one of the things that I read about was his mother had actually testified against him or for the, for him, I guess. And she went on to describe him as being um, like extra special sensitive um, to people picking on him and that he would get extremely angry and all these different things. And so she um, you know, goes on to say that he uh, killed his goldfish. I mean, she does not help for it all, but she basically, you know, tells him how he, how he handles things. And that definitely didn't help the situation, but he, he goes on um, to say that um, he, you know, was not okay so this this is another thing and i and i think i'll handle this i'll kind of hold this to the end because there's a some kind of a little bit of a um thing between him and kayla so he goes on to say you know that he might be responsible for holding her but he's not responsible for raping her and all this stuff but that kind of can come on a little bit later on i'll kind of i'll do that at the end because that kind of just confuses things so he goes on and says um that um, he did not do anything between 2003 and 2015. So that it's hard for me to believe that there's a lull between the fact that the first time he, he did something. And then of course the superbike murders, but there he is. Now he goes on to say that he's killed more people. It's hard to know with Todd because he wants people to, um, believe that he is, more sinister than he is. He wants to be well-known. He wants to be remembered. And so it's hard to know if he's telling the truth, but he ends up getting um, a plea bargain, another one. And this one happened for all the murders and it happened in May 6, 2017. So they give him a plea bargain um, and he doesn't get the death penalty. They don't even pursue it. He gets where he can plead guilty to seven murders and so then he gets seven consecutive life sentences and plus 60 years. Okay. And now he is actually still in that place and he's in Broad River Correctional Institute in Columbia, South Carolina. Now, you know, we always got to, we've got to put in there things that you may not know about, about Todd Cohelp, things that they may not have covered uh, his secrets. So <laughs> this one is kind of funny, um, especially all of us that liked, um, to buy from Amazon. So one of the things that Todd did was he loved to buy on Amazon and he would buy shovels and 
um, different things that he used for his murders. And then he loved to write reviews on there and give him feedback. And so between 2014 and 2016, he left over 140 Amazon reviews. And this was for knives, guns, tactical gear. And this is one in particular that was funny. He goes on to say um, that he, he bought a padlock with a hidden shackle. And he's especially gruesome when he's telling it. So he leaves this feedback saying, it works great. Also, if someone talks back, go old school on them by putting it in a sock and beating them. They will not appreciate the hardened steel, but like you will. So it's kind of funny that he would, you know, leave these 140 reviews that where people could see it. And nobody thought to report him and say, hey, this guy might be using these tools to bury people. And he did. He used those tools to kill people. He used them to bury them on his property. So that was kind of funny that that was one of his secrets and it never came back to haunt him. I, I don't even think anybody looked into it until after he was charged. Another thing um, that they talked about was his dad, um, William Sampseal, Samp which is his dad, that his bio dad that lived in Tempe, Arizona. He goes on to talk about how great of a childhood that Todd had, how they got along so well. And he actually owned a restaurant and his restaurant was named Billy's Famous for Ribs. And that's the name of his restaurant. And he would say that, you know, Todd would would um, be at the restaurant doing his homework and everything else. And so he um, he owned a rib restaurant. So that's kind of funny. Um, another one of Todd's secrets is he basically, and he, he told this to one of the investigators, that he actually shot um, Carver, which was Kayla's boyfriend at the time, Charlie Carver. And he, he didn't shoot him for any reason. Charlie did nothing wrong. He just said that he was mad at Kayla because she had a, quote, smart mouth. So he got tired of hearing Kayla's crap. He just shot Charlie. And so Charlie died for no fault of his own. Um, another thing was Kayla said that Todd was actually planning a future for him. Um, a bizarre one, but a future. He goes, she goes on to say that Todd um, told her he was going to build a house out there on that property and that he was going to make her her own room, a soundproof room to keep her locked in and that they were going to have a relationship. Um, and, and that was where he was going to hold her the whole time. Um, so kind of bizarre. Another one of his secrets was, and we don't even know the reason for this one, but Charlie and Johnny, both of the men that he killed were found when they were dug up, they were found missing their, that they were missing their feet. Never did find their feet. Never did figure out why Todd cut them off. And I don't think he ever explained that a lot of times in, in these um, documentaries, they all hit on this. When you talk to Todd, because he is a prolific liar and he is so full of poop, that sometimes you come away from the interview actually having more questions than you did have answered. And so I think that's a lot of what they got. So they never did find out why he cut the men's feet off and not the women, uh, the, well, the woman, which was just Megan. Now, a lot's happened since 2016, 2017. 
Todd is having a biography written by one of his, um, I wouldn't say friends, uh, a man that worked for him that he considered his friend. Um, they're kind of acquaintances. He's having him write up his biography. So some things have come to light. Now, Todd was always saying that Kayla was not, that he did not rape her. And he didn't, he never ever said, no, I didn't lock her up. No, I didn't do these things. He just said she wasn't guilty of rape. And what's come to light since then was that Kayla was a stripper. And during that time when she was stripping, and this was the girl that was locked in the Connex box, that her and Todd Colehep had a relationship. Um, she would need money. He would pay her for money and she would have sex for him, with him, not for him. And that also they had had a previous sexual relationship prior to her um, going out there the day, you know, uh, see, I think it was as late as August 22nd. So not, but like two weeks before her and her boyfriend went out to Todd Colehep's house, her and Todd had been having a relationship. They actually have Facebook um, um, messengers to prove it and that talk to, you know, show her setting up times and that, that, that Charlie would be at work and that they could have sex. So I think her credibility might be, uh, it's kind of hard, but you know what, just because she had had a relationship with him prior to it, prior to this doesn't mean that she agreed to be locked in a Connex box and being raped every day. So, but you know, that's just something that's come to light since then. Some other things that have come to light was the fact that he may not have killed the people at Superbike. There has been some interrogation. He seems like a sicko in my opinion. That's just weird. Some of the methods that he's doing is really off the wall. Especially having somebody chained up. That's weird. It's kind of like my dude doing some really, really sick stuff. Yeah. And in the interrogation um, um, interviews, they have Todd actually saying, and they're saying, now, did you really kill these people at Superbike? And he's like, well, as far as you know, I did. And you're going to fry me anyway for the first three so, you know, and it's almost like he's, you know, just telling what he heard on TV. So there's a chance that he did lie about these four killings um, and made himself sound, you know, like more of a mass murderer or, you know, whatever, so that he would be remembered. So they're unsure about that. But for right now, he is definitely still in prison and still got life for those four. Um, he's not going to get out anyway. He got life for the other three that he killed. So, but something that they have and there's actually a documentary and it's one of my sources and i'll be sure to tell you those two is um a documentary that is looking into possible multiple victims you know victims in tempe arizona there were a lot of sexual assaults even in todd cohep's neighborhood where he lived during the same time when he um assaulted christy um so the devil in a chain the pseudonym that was given to him actually was from a neighbor. So they, he was been arrested when he was 15 and walked out in front of the neighbor, um, walked out to the police car and a neighbor said, oh, he's a devil on a chain. And it kind of stuck. So that's what kind of his pseudonym. The documentary I was watching is Serial Killer, Devil Unchained. 
Um, and that one is actually, it's a several parts, but they're looking into the fact that he may have murdered other people and that he definitely may have been responsible for some sexual assaults in the Tempe, Arizona area. Now he was only 15, so it wasn't like he was driving anywhere, but there were some within like five or 10 minutes walking distance of his dad's home. So that documentary is one of my sources. I also use cinemaholic.com and crimemuseum.org to, to um, get the information. And um, I encourage you guys to watch the documentary, Serial Killer Devil Unchained. That one is, was very interesting. Um, and, I, and I plan on finish watching it too and, and seeing what next we're going to find out about Todd Cohelp. Because I don't think we know of all of what he's done. Um, and, and you can't go by anything he says because he's a liar. So, but that's him. That is Todd Cohep. And he's the real estate killer as far as I'm concerned. Cause that's the thing that really was bizarre. All I could think about was like the person that showed our house. Like I couldn't imagine being alone with them. And then years later, seeing him being arrested on TV and being like, Oh my God, there's our real estate agent. You know what I mean? And thinking back, Holy crap, I was alone with him in the house or something, you know? So that's kind of what stuck with me, but yeah, very interesting fella and definitely got some mental issues and he had he had them very well so that's super disturbing some of our serial killers that we've shown up here they they were not able to function um as well as he did in society you know and to be successful so but all right nick we're going to talk about your guy you're one of the three first names <laughs> so the killer i'm going to be talking about today is david parker ray aka the toy box killer david was born in bevlin new mexico on november 6 1939 to parents cecile and nettie ray and one sibling named peggy cecile was a violent alcoholic he didn't have a job and he drifted in and out of town a lot he would stop by his home once every six months or so even though he was gone all the time he would try to bond with his son Cecile showed him violent and murderous pornographic photos. The pictures were taken in 1940. They seem a little bit more tame than what we can find on the internet today, but it still made a mark on David's life. He had no other adult figures in his life that actually were worth a damn. Not much was known about his mother, Nettie. They said that she moved in with her sister after her husband's violent behavior became too much for her. She still neglected David a lot. Some theories think that she was a drug addict or an alcoholic, but we'll never know for sure. His aunt used to watch him while his parents weren't around. When she was left alone with David, she would force him to have sex with her. No one knows what age he was when this was happening, but the abuse lasts for years. His aunt wanted him to participate in her sexual fantasies, making him hurt her for her own sexual pleasure. They classified his aunt as a masochist, someone who experiences pleasure and mixes it with pain. Masochism is up for debate when it comes to psychologists, psychiatrists, psychoanalysts. They all have their opinion and theory about it. But they all came to a conclusion that she was using escapism. Instead of focusing on the bad things in her life, she would focus on the pain that David was inflicting on her to ease her mind. It could be possible that she was abusing David for those reasons. She was financially destitute, she had to take care of her sister's children, and she was also on drugs. Instead of seeing a professional about her overwhelming problems, she took him out on David, only furthering to damage his psyche. 
He would forever mix pain and sexual pleasure together. Somewhere in the 1950s, when he was only just 10, his mom and him moved in with the grandma, 25 miles east from their hometown. His grandma didn't sexually abuse him, but she neglected him and treated him like crap, and he spent most of his time wandering the ranch alone. His grandmother was more than happy to leave him alone with his devices. He would go to junkyards and look for older engines and then rip them apart and put them back together. He would take crappy engines and make them run like they were brand new. He was really good with mechanics and very creative, but it didn't take long until his creativity mixed with his sexual pleasure. He began writing in his sexual desires down in a journal and sketching out his ideas for his perverse inventions. He wanted to apply these to the victims that he captured. Just at the age of 10, he was having thoughts of raping a woman with a broken beer bottle. His fantasies got worse from there. For years, he kept his hidden desires away from the outside world. When he would meet a girl, he'd always wonder what it'd be like to inflict pain on her. So in 1956, he found his first victim. Most of his sexual and murderous life in the beginning was all down in his journals, so he could relive them in his memories. Unfortunately, he only wrote down what he wanted to remember, so he didn't put down the victim's name or what he did to them after he was done with them. They contained the year, the length of the torture, age range, and a few notes explaining what he did to them, why he was holding them as his hostage. The journals also had an unhelpful ranking system, which he used to further dehumanize his captives. He would give a 1 if he found them pretty, 2, average, 3, unappealing. His first entry in the journal was when he was only 15 in 1955. He named the area Ranch Grove, which was somewhere on the property. He said his first victim was a 15-year-old. He said that this was his first sexual experience, and they pretended it was rape. It was also said he would tightly spread eagle her from one tree to another and play with her. He said in the notes that the girl enjoyed it, and it could possibly be consensual, but we'll never know. But it wouldn't take him long to actually start experiencing and working with sexual violence. The second journal entry in 1956, he stated it was his first kidnapping and first rape. The victim was very pretty and approximately 16 years old. He kept her at Pine Shadow Tent, and he kept her for a weekend. There's hiking trails not too far, so he probably went to a local town, snatched her up, took her to the wilderness, and held her as a captive in a tent. Once he got into the mountains, he raped her. He went into detail of everything he did. Investigators think it wasn't just his first rape. It was also his first murder. It's difficult to say how he killed the girl. We know very little about what he did to the girl beyond his notes. He tried new sadistic techniques. It was his first kidnapping, and like anything you do, we're all ex unexperienced and young. His goal was to cause pain and damage to his victims. He had no knowledge to effectively hurt people without accidentally killing them. So he was practicing his new techniques by starting off cutting her, and with the sight of blood, it would have been visual proof that he was hurting her. But with no medical knowledge, he wouldn't have been able to staunch the bleeding. And over the course of two days, it seems like his victim died from blood loss. He buried her in the wilderness and her body was never found. He finally succeeded with his sadistic evil kink. And with a little taste of violence, it made him want more. So in 1956, he was 15 years old when he claimed his first 16-year-old victim. Him and his sister moved in with their grandparents, but no one knows for sure when a classmate said it was in 1956. 
So a classmate said David was short for his age, 5'6 and shy. Him and his sister would take a motorized scooter down to the intersection and the shuffle would pick them up and take them to school. Other classmates said that he was silent and he refused to look them in the eye. He also got bullied for it. He never stood up for himself. He continued to act out his fantasies in the wilderness. And in his entry for 1957, he raped a 16-year-old girl. He took her to a location called BLMK Cove Shore, which was a mining cave somewhere in the wilderness outside of Shoal, New Mexico. This cave is so secluded, it still hasn't been found to this day. This is the first time he included an accomplice in his crimes. In the journal, he says, Surely help me. We made a few mistakes. The girl almost got away. There's a lot of experiments performed on this girl. But no one really knows who Shirley is, how her and David met, or how he convinced her to be a part of his crime. No one knows. But also, a rape report was never filed before or after the situation. So, pretty much, come to conclusion, the victim was probably murdered. They also adopted a 20-year-old college student and took her to the cave. In his journal, he says, Shirley set the girl up for kidnapping. No one knows what she was getting out of the arrangement. Maybe she was a sadist as well. They think that Shirley and the girl were friends and that they were drinking at a party, and when it started to slow down, she offered her marijuana or harder drugs. She was so scared to do these activities around other people, so Shirley took her back to the cave. David was out there waiting for them. He probably forced her to the ground, tied her up with ropes. The girl screamed at Shirley, crying out for help, but Shirley tied the ropes tighter. She realized she has been set up. David probably told her everything he was going to do to her, and then he brought out his tools. He shoved her with needles and jackfish hooks, stabbing her over and over again at the most sensitive spots on her body. After they were done, they likely killed and buried her. The victim was never found and is still a mystery. Nobody knows the relationship with Shirley and David. Were they lovers or just crime partners? They found a third person. She was stranded with a flat tire. So eager, they asked her if she needed any help. She was a 17-year-old, trusting but a gullible young lady. Once her guard was down, they punched her right in the face, gagged her, and tossed her in the vehicle, and brought her back to the cave with the same sick torture that they did with the person before. She was never identified as well or ever found. Another victim was an 18-year-old that was at a bus stop, and they befriended the individual, and then they captured her. And then they took her to the same cave, and the woman was tied up to a table with her legs tied back for most of the weekend. They did breast bondage, cutting off blood flow to the breast, and Shirley would rip out some of her pubic hairs. Not her own, but the victim's pubes. They did other tortures as well. It was so bad that the victim passed out a few times. He likely killed four women in 1957. He was a pro-kidnapper and serial killer at the age of 17. So in 1958, he graduated high school, but there was no job opportunities. So he moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and became a mechanic. He hit the bars at night, and he wanted a girlfriend. He began meeting women, and he met his first love interest, who has been kept anonymous for her safety. We don't know if she knew about his dark past, but if she did, she didn't care. They made a great connection, and in 1959, after a few months of dating, they got married. He went from being 5 feet 6 inches at graduation to being 6 foot 2, and it made it easier for him. He joined the military and became a mechanic. He was stationed in Korea, but he never saw armed conflict. 
The behavior did not stop while he was overseas. His journals lacked entries during this time. Due to the war and the area being unlawful and empty, it would have made it easy for him to select his victims. In 1960, he got his wife pregnant, and they said hello to their first child, David Evan Ray. And then he also had to go back to Korea, and after a few months, his wife gave up their son to the New Hampshire State Department of Welfare, likely due to drug problems. He came home in 1961 and got custody of his son without a fight from his ex-wife. Left his son with his mother before getting deployed to Fort Worth, Texas. So in 1962, while on leave, he met another young girl. He ended up getting married to her. And then after just three months of being married, the marriage failed. And after that, he was honorably discharged from the Army. He got a job in Albuquerque, New Mexico, working as a driver of a cement truck. Two victims a year, or even more. They're either too scared to come forward, or they were cleanly disposed of. In 1963, he kidnapped two girls when the idea of trying out a new tortured method. He went 40 miles north of Albuquerque in the wilderness. One was a 22-year-old he picked up at the bar, and the other one was a 25-year-old hitchhiker. He started doing electric shock therapy on them. He clamped the jumper cables to his victim's breasts. He would send electricity running through her body. His goal was to inflict as much pain as possible. He didn't have the voltage high enough to kill her, but just high enough to make her body feel like it was burning from the inside out. They developed internal and external burns. Highly unlikely they survived. He at least killed 20 women by this time. From fish hooks to electricity, he abandoned his son, and with two failed marriages, he wasn't done looking for love. So in 1966, he met Glenda Burden, an 18-year-old girl with a toddler named Ron, a quiet girl looking for someone to help raise her son. David, he was a tall 26-year-old man. They dated and got married in a shotgun wedding. Yeehaw! So on May 2nd, 1967, they had a girl, Glenda Jane Ray. He lives with his wife, his son, his stepson, and now his new daughter. He soon abandoned his family. He became a drifter, and he would go from place to place using his mechanic skills to help him get by. Folks thought he was the nicest and charismatic person that they ever met. Eventually, he got tired of that life, so he moved back in with his family, and he started taking courses in airplane repair mechanics. He passed that test with flying colors, and he became certified. He was offered a job as an instructor as an airplane mechanic and Spartan School in Oklahoma. They moved to Tulsa. He was a respected instructor. He was a good father, and he rarely got mad at his kids. And they never, ever got lashed out at. He was very laid back. But at night, he would snatch up two women once a year to fulfill his fantasies. The sick behavior spiked in 1973 when he was 33 years old. Through that year, he kidnapped five girls... Two of them were teenage sisters hitchhiking, and he tortured them for five days. Two, he picked up at the bar before torturing them for a weekend. The fifth victim was a 30-year-old mother who happened to have her infant son with her. When she hit the road with David, he took them to EB Tent Eastside, which investigators abbreviated to Eastside of Elephant Buke Lake, the first time he took someone to his primary hunting and disposal ground. In his notes, he describes the boy was a pain, but Mama wasn't bad. He likely killed the woman and her child and dumped their bodies in the lake. Elephant Buke Lake 
was well suited to hiding bodies. There was a deep drop off in the lake and the lake was 157 feet deep. The bottom is filled with silt and it swallows anything that is unlucky enough to reach the bottom. Excuse me. David was so good at being meticulous at covering up his crimes, police never suspected him as a suspect. Even if they were looking for the victims around the lake, it would be nearly impossible. He got away with it time after time after time, and he was drawn back to it. Throughout the 1970s, David moved in his family. Well, he moved his family to Victoria, Texas, and he ran a gas station. Then he moved his family back to Albuquerque and started working on the railroad. During this time, his killings never stopped. He kept up his pace of two girls a year, and he created a bond with his daughter to separate her and her mother's name. They called her Jessie. See, his daughter and wife have the same name, so he gave her the nickname Jessie so they wouldn't get confused. She knew about her father's dark sexual behaviors at a young age, and he showed her violent sexual graphic photos to her. He didn't even make any effort to try to hide his victims from his daughter. As a child, she had no idea his actions were wrong and gruesome. His violence didn't stand between their relationship, though, and the closer he grew to his daughter, the further away he got from his wife. So in 1981, David and Glenda divorced for reasons unknown. David was 41. In 1982, he moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and he got a job at an up-and-coming auto parts shop working under a man named Billy Stone, along with his business partner, Billy Ray Bowers. David and Billy worked so good together, the business grew quite large. David was making more money than he's ever made before, and he bought a second home. In 1983, 43-year-old no, David got a small place near Elephant Buke Lake, and he started making connections to the underground scene of the BDSM community. Well, within the community, he met a girl named Jonah Lee. Jonah was into the same BDSM and kinky stuff he was. Him and Jonah got married, and this was his fourth marriage. Don't know if she was involved in his kidnappings, but she allowed him to make his mechanical bondage torture devices on their property, and he used this probably on his wife consensually. When his daughter turned 19, she became part of his desires. Since she was raised by him, she thought his behavior was normal. She knew it was illegal, but she didn't see nothing wrong with it. Still, she butt heads with her father from time to time, and in 1986, her and David got in a heated fight, and no one knows why. June of 1986, she was so mad that she called the Albuquerque FBI and told them everything about her father. She talked about his kidnappings, fetishes, and holding people captive for days on end. She always said after he was done, he would either kill them or sell them into sexual slavery in Mexico. They were stunned, but they were confident they had a solid lead. And 1986 was the first time David was seen under the FBI microscope. The FBI thanked her for her statement and they started the investigation on him. Didn't know much about the investigation, but they looked for traces of victims, but they couldn't find any. They brought David in for questioning on multiple occasions. He was very forward, cooperative, and examples of his sexual fetishes. He told them about the BDSM community and the kinks that he participates in, which is in Phoenix. David even sold his devices in the BDSM magazines. David showed the investigators the ads that he had placed. He took them to his P.O. box, where he shipped and received orders. He was way too comfortable explaining his sexual desires. Ever since he was 13, he was obsessed with bondage culture and sadism. 
He could go months at a time without feeling anything, and then his sexual urges would kick in. He became obsessive, and his behavior would change, and he would imagine tons of sexual things, including killing women in order to ejaculate. David even told the FBI investigators he could potentially be dangerous without confessing to any crimes. He pretty much told them almost everything. We don't know if they tapped his phone or searched his home, but the investigation lasted a whole year. From 1986 to 1987, he had the FBI on his back, but they couldn't find any evidence. Jesse was either unable or unwilling to provide further details of the victims. They were left with general accusations and no hard evidence. David's corroboration could be taken two different ways. They believed that his ramblings were from a strange but innocent man, but in hindsight, he was an incredible, confident killer. The FBI agent said, A thorough investigation was given at the time. When the logical investigation was complete and the leads were covered, the case was closed. David was left to be a free man. He managed to snatch two women while being under investigation. One was a 25-year-old sex worker he chained up while she was sleeping. He hung her from the ceiling with cuffs and exposed her to sexual torture. No one knows if he sold her to sex trafficking, killed her, or released her back in public. The other was a 15-year-old girl that was hitchhiking from school. He likes this victim and enjoys her because of her small size, like a Barbie doll, pretty and easy to handle. Don't know her ultimate fate either. Don't know how they completely went unnoticed by the FBI. Somewhere in 1986, Jesse made up with her father and joined him once again in his sick, twisted game. His next murder, the investigator said, believe was his first non-sexual driven murder. In 1988, Billy was getting tired of the mechanic life. He discussed selling his share of the business and taking off. Don't know why, but for some weird reason it upset David. Billy and David were fighting over money that year. September 16th, the arguments escalated. Billy told his family that he was afraid someone might try and come and kill him. Unclear if it was David threatening him, Billy made secret company workbooks stating, Contact the police if anything ever happens to me. The end of September, Billy Bowers disappeared. Friends, family, co-workers didn't know anything about his whereabouts. They immediately contacted the police. They inspected the shop and even interrogated David extensively. He denied it. They believe he did it, but with no body nor evidence, they couldn't hold it against him. The same year, David captured two more women in Phoenix, 18-year-old sex worker and a 16-year-old runaway, tied them both to do different beds and took turns on them. He had an unknown helper. He bought a detachable semi-trailer that he parked in the backyard. He began soundproofing this trailer, stocking it with twisted sex toys and homemade sex devices. This became David's infamous toy box. September 1989. A few miles away from David's house, a fisherman in Elephant Buke Lake found a tarp floating and he called the cops immediately. When they tried to pull the tarp into the boat, they noticed two anchor holds holding them down. Well, anchor hooks holding them down. The tarp was tight, wrapped around the body. The man was killed with a single gunshot to the back of the head. Due to the decomposition, the body was unidentifiable. David knew who corpse has just been found. It was Billy Bowards. It floated to the surface after being submerged in water. 
Billy was the only victim of David's that was ever found. He remained free, and he modified a weightlifting bench, and he added straps, leg rests, and turned into a gynecological chair with the painful twists. He even added electrical wiring. In 1993, he recorded and perfected his introduction tape that he would play for his new victims as they awoke in his chamber. He told them every disgusting thing and even went into detail that he was going to do to them on that tape. And in the same year, he got to see how scary but amusing that was. He abducted two different sex workers at two different times, and he kept one for four days and the other for five. He played the tape for both of them while they both broke down crying. For both, he wrote his experience with the new torture devices. He used ankle winches to widen their pelvises to simulate the pain of childbirth. Also, a bar steel bra, nipple screws, and weights. So in 1994, him and Jonah started having marital problems. He told the investigators that the issue was he was having with his wife while talking to them. Jonah Lee knew what I like, but would never let me use it on her. Jealousy of the fantasy, we drifted apart. She became real crazy, having epilepsy attacks and drinking heavily. One time she held a pistol to my head and I just couldn't take it anymore. They got divorced. She moved to Pennsylvania and he sold his second house in Arizona and moved back to his first one full time in New Mexico. It was such a small town there wasn't many mechanic positions open for David. Elephant Butte State Park was hiring. He was offered the job as a state park employee, and it gave him a government state uniform and making him more dangerous. His new job allowed him to drive all over the state park, including the secluded areas. He was free and able to dispose any of the bodies he wanted. So in 1995, he kidnapped three different women. He upgraded his toy box with medical supplies and medical textbooks. He wanted to keep them alive as long as possible. He had two drawers that were the size of a coffin and he would put them in it and then he would store them under a bench, making it easier to capture two different women at the same time and holding them hostage for longer periods of time. It would increase their fear that was built in his victims. It gave them a break from the torture, but intensed it more when the time would come. Two women captured each. They could hear each other's screams and cries. He was a master of psychological and physical torture. He kept kidnapping women throughout 1996, and on July 25, 1996, he was in his house getting his surgical supplies ready for his next victim when he got a phone call. Well, he was also taking Viagra, and he got more potent. The blue pill helped his old age, and he was able to maintain a good time. But then he got a phone call from his daughter Jessie. He picked it up. She would be bringing him another toy to play with. David got excited. He rewound his cassette tape, and he prepped a weight bench, and he selected the tools he wanted to incline to use. Kelly Von Cleve, a 23-year-old hanging out with her friends at the Blue Water Saloon across town. She went to the bar after a fight with her new husband. He wanted to have sex, but the act was very painful to her, and she didn't know why. The night helped her forget about the fight, and she stayed longer than expected. The person's car she was supposed to drive already left. She didn't mind staying behind. She loved hanging out with her friends and her good old pal, Jesse Ray, who offered her a ride home. Dun, 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 dun. After, the night wind, after the night wind down, 
Jesse and Kelly went out to Jesse's motorcycle. They got on the bike. Kelly told her, you went the wrong way, and that she was lost. She replied, I'm not lost. I'm tipsy, and I'm going home to get a cup of coffee. I'm going to let the coffee kick in so I can drive you home safely. Kelly was a little hesitant, but agreed. It wasn't like she had any other options. Jump off the bike. Ooh. <laughs> they made it to the house. Jesse told Kelly to sit on the couch. She did, and Jesse went into the other room. Kelly looked around for a second. Her mind wandered off back to her husband, wondering if he was angry or upset that she stayed out too long or that she was at the bar. David come running in from the other room with the knife saying, You are mine now, and you better get used to it. Jesse came back in the room holding a dog collar and handcuffs. Jesse clamped them around her wrist and her neck. Kelly was shocked, and they marched her out of the house with the knife at her throat. He opened the door to the trailer, and it smelled like tears, sweat, and death. He marched her in, closed the door, and turned on the lights. A sign on the wall said, Welcome to Satan's Den. There were complicated hand drawings, devices drawn on the wall. There was equipment on a few racks that were meant for tearing the skin and ripping people's insides out. The white bench was sitting in the middle of the room. They forced her on the bench, and they strapped her down. They put the bars on her and then cuffed her ankles, and then they raised her legs and then spread them apart. David used the knife and started cutting through her clothes. She was naked, helpless, and afraid, and he turned on his video cameras, and he went to the tape recorder, and he pressed play. David's voice saying the worst things Kelly could have ever imagined. She watched as David and Jesse left the room, leaving her with the tape. The next few days were a blur. Kelly remembered being abused. The most traumatic moments for her is when David tried to use oversized dildos on her, telling her he stole her for his satanic ritual group he was a part of. At the time, she didn't know that she had a tilted uterus, which is a medical issue, which the womb is actually angled backwards. And for some, re uh, for some women, the tilted uterus can be harmless and they could go on without their lives without it affecting them but for kelly that condition restricted her flexibilities pushing against her organs making it very painful for her and it pissed david off and he said if he couldn't get his instruments of torture far enough in her that she was useless to him and his mistress mistress he told her a few times that he had no problem getting rid of her three days straight he tortured her six separate times and he stuck a needle in her skin that had drugs in it, and she passed out. She woke up, and she was getting pushed out of his car, and she noticed that he had a state uniform on. They were on a normal street in front of a normal house, and he pulled her up to the front of the yard, and he left her there for a moment. He knocked on the front door, and her husband and his parents came answering. She cried and joyed, and they looked down, and they gave her a crappy look, asking, Where has she been? Or, Where have you been? She said she couldn't remember. They were mad, and they were accusing her of running off with another man. David found her walking around the lake all drugged up, is what he said. They were going to file for divorce, and that she was no longer welcome in his house. She was stunned. She didn't know what to do. So David grabbed her and started directing her back to the car. He pushed her all the way back to the car, and she was flabbergasted. She couldn't believe what just happened. So she got in his car and was sitting in the front seat. David dropped her off at one of her friend's house, and he said, You're free to go. A few years pass, 
Kelly was having a hard time remembering what happened to her. She didn't report the situation to the police because if she didn't trust her own memories, no one else will. She tried to chalk it up to a nightmares and then try to move on. She was the first victim to survive David's dark fantasies and he wouldn't be stopped for another three years. Jesse and David met a woman named Cindy Hendy. She just moved to the area. She moved to New Mexico with her abusive boyfriend to escape the drug charges that they had in Washington. She left her boyfriend a few months ago, both caught around the bar scene. Cindy was attracted to David. They began dating. She met a 24-year-old man named Dennis Roy Yancey. He got into bar fights, vandalism, and he was suspected of a murder of another man his age, but with little evidence, he walked free. They all met up at the bar to get high and drunk. They all shared the same interests, especially in sexual sadism. So in 1997, he introduced Cindy and Dennis to his toy box. Don't know how many people helped them kidnapped, but Dennis met a woman named Marie B. Parker. She had two kids but lost them to drugs. They dated for a while until he started treating her poorly and then they broke up. He took it personally. So he asked David if he would help him adopt her and keep her in his toy box. So on July 5th, 1997, Marie went missing. A friend reported her disappearances, her disappearance to the police. They had little evidence to go on. They didn't know her whereabouts. They left her file open. Marie was in David's toy box. The three of them took turns torturing her for days, and after the torture, David told Dennis to kill her and get rid of the body. He strangled her, he buried her in the desert, and she was never found. The next two years, David, Jesse, Dennis, and Cindy tortured an unknown number of victims. Dennis moved in and out of town, Jesse moved into her own place, and in 1998, Cindy moved into David's home. February 17, 1999, 59-year-old David and 39-year-old Cindy met up with their friend Angelica. She was having... A birthday party for her husband. See, she was friends with them because she was pretty much in the same shit they were, that underground sex scene BDSM. But she was also known as a sex worker with the glass eye. But to her friends, she was a sweetheart and a very loving person. But she was throwing a birthday party for her boyfriend, but she needed cake mix to make him a cake. Well, David and Cindy said that they had some at the house if she wanted to come by and get it. David drove to her house. Drove well. David drove her to his house, and once inside, he pulled a knife on her, and he told her that she was being taken hostage. At first, she thought it was a prank, so she laughed. He punched her full force in the stomach, and she knew he wasn't joking. Took off all her clothes and tied her to the bed, and he forced her to take some drugs and listen to David's recording. Rape and tortured her for two days. Took her to the toy box and introduced her to the electric torment. She was chained to the high-tech gynecological chair for three days and she began to lose hope. She pretended to be enjoying the torture and on her fifth day, when David was torturing her alone, Angelica told him she enjoyed their time together and asked him if she'd be able to leave soon. Her two boys are probably wondering where she has been and she promised David that she wouldn't tell a soul. For some reason, he called her a nice lady and he said he'd let her go. Cindy argued with him, saying that she'd tell the police, but David stood his ground. And on Sunday, February 21st, they cleaned Angelica inside and out. And they clothed her, 
and then drove her miles down the highway. They let her out on the side of the road. She could barely believe it. She walked the road with her thumb out trying to find a ride home. Gary LaBea, an off-duty officer, offered her a ride. As they were riding together, she told him everything, but unfortunately he didn't believe her. Sadly, the more intoxicated the person is, it's harder for law enforcement to believe them. When he picked her up, she was still high from the drugs that David gave her. So on March 20th, 1999, Cindy and David drove to Albuquerque, New Mexico in their RV. Reasons was to adopt a sex worker. He picked up Cindy V. Hill. She entered the RV. And so, Cindy Hindi ran out of the bathroom with the stun baton and electrocuted Cindy V. Hill right in her stomach. They cuffed her waist, they cuffed her wrist together, locked her in the wooden box, and drove all the way back to David's home, which was 150 miles from Albuquerque. They marched her into the bedroom of his home. Any moves that she would go towards the window or the door, they would zap her with the stun baton. They strapped her to the bed. They put the dog collar around her neck and attached the chain to the wall, and they played the tape. She was so scared. She asked God to help her find a way out or to die quickly, and for the next two days, she was raped and tortured. They unchained her to use the restroom. The collar never came off. In March, 19, in March 22, 1999, she almost lost hope. David loosened the chains to let her use the restroom. The plan was to go to the toy box later that day and the chains stayed loose. Midday, David went out to get supplies so he could have fun with her later that day. They made sure that her chains were fastened to the post, and he left Sydney behind. She mocked the victim, and then she left the room to go watch TV. <laughs> okay. Cindy left the keys laying on the table next to the victim. Well, Cindy V. Hill would push her body inch by inch, and after minutes of pain... She grabbed the keys and then unlocked herself. She tried to unlock the collar around her neck, but it was a different key. She saw that the chain on the wall was the same size as all the others, so she tried the key and it worked. The collar was still around her neck, but the chain was hanging from behind her, but it was free. She ended up running out of the room. She saw Cindy sitting on the couch blocking the exit. She jumped to her feet and grabbed the lamp. V. Hill grabbed an ice pick. And right when she did, the lamp broke against her forehead, putting a gash in her head. Well, she didn't fall. She stuck the ice pick in the back of Cindy's neck. And she fell to the ground, and she was stunned by the womb. V. Hill ran out the front door. Neighbors saw her naked running down the road with the metal dog collar around her neck. And the police was called. A neighboring couple let her stay there until the police got there. And V. Hill told police everything. They put the word out for David's capture, and they found him and Cindy searching the roads looking for V. Hill. They arrested him on the spot. 59-year-old David Parker Ray's 45-year-old reign of terror was officially over. It took investigators some time to piece the case together, and after they got search warrants, they found his toy box, recordings, and a video of a woman with a familiar tattoo. Well, that woman in the tape was Kelly Van Cleve. She moved to California thinking her abduction was an assortment of nightmares. She was horrified to find out that they were real and she was eager to testify against David and Jesse. Deputy Labada, or however you pronounce it, remembered his conversation with Angelica. 
He didn't believe her, but now he did. Well, he went and he found her, and she was eager to testify against David as well. They found his journal and a list of victims in it. He gave a confession once they pressed him. He avoided giving names, and he spoke to his past crimes as fantasies. They pressed Cindy and Jesse. Jesse was not breaking. Cindy did. Cindy said that David bragged to her about the killings of all sorts of women, his first kill at 15, his former business partner, Billy Bowers, and ordered Dennis to kill Marie. They arrested Dennis, and he crumbled under the investigation. He quickly confessed to the murder of Marie and the assistant in several kidnappings and tortures. They searched the desert, David's yard, and the lake. They couldn't find any hard-hitting proof of his many victims. They believe he could be responsible for up to 60 disappearances, but only found one body, which was Billy Bowers. And they tried to charge him for Billy's murder, but the lack of evidence, he was never convicted of the murder. But due to the three surviving Due to the three survivors, they charged him for all the other crimes. Well, the trial went on for two years, and on September 20th, 2001, he was found guilty for assault, unlawful sexual penetration, kidnapping, and a whole full list of other crimes. He was sentenced to 224 years in prison, and the eight in the next eight months, investigators interrogated David to get information out about his many victims. Unfortunately, it didn't work. He was sent to Leia County Correctional Facilities in Hobbs, New Mexico. And on May 28, 2002, the first official day of his sentencing, they had him in a holding cell waiting for his paperwork to process. And after only a few minutes of sitting in his new cell, his heart stopped. He had a massive heart attack that killed him immediately. They declared him dead at 8.40 p.m. Well, that's the story of David Parker Ray. So here's a few facts or some secrets or things you may not even know about David. Well, with his toy box, he had it wired. So any extreme movement from his victims, it would notify him because he had some sensors in there. He sometimes would watch them on his TV for pleasure. So I guess when he left, Kelly in there and him and Jesse walked out. He was actually going into the living room and sitting there and watching Kelly, which is very creepy. He doesn't like killing women unless it's absolutely necessary. So what are you trying to say, David? So the reason why Kelly could not remember anything, because the drugs that David was giving everybody was sodium, pentothal, and phenomenobarbical, P-H-E-N-O, B-A-R-B-I-T-A-L, however you pronounce that. So he would mix them together, and it was more like a hypnosis type of drug is what David was saying. But what it was doing, it was making her forget her past off. So that's why Kelly wasn't able to remember that shit because of these two mixed together. Makes sense now. He also did torture his victims with bestiality. Oh my goodness, he said some weird shit on the tape like he would let his dogs do some like sexual stuff to his victims. He was like, just beware that the claws are going to scratch your breast. And I'm like, the hell is wrong with this guy? He had multiple accomplices over the years. I don't know how many he actually had. Dennis, Shirley, Cindy, his daughter, about four? 
I don't know if his uh, wife, Jesse's mom, I don't know if she was involved at all. At least four accomplices. He picked up his victims at the same place. And he also worked for the government as well. See, David wasn't stupid. He worked as a mechanic at this like auto shop that he killed Billy at. He worked as a mechanic in the army. He drove a cement truck for a company, ran a gas station, and also went for airplane repair uh, mechanics. And he became an instructor. So David was far from a stupid person. So it's weird that he would allow something like this to happen. It's crazy. So David actually has his tape on YouTube. Well, sadly, it's not actually David talking. The FBI didn't actually the FBI didn't actually release the tapes to the public, but a transcript got out and somebody made pretty much an audio of it. And so what they did is they read off everything that David said in the original audio and they just put a voice changer over it. So I'm only going to play like a snippet of it. So once you guys know, it's a little bit disturbing. So I'm not going to play the most sickening parts, but I'm just going to play the parts that I feel like are worth playing, which is going to be a small snippet of it because it's 55 minutes long. So if you want to hear the whole thing, just go to YouTube and just type in David Parker Ray's tape. So, yeah, let's get into it. Before I do that, sorry you guys, I was just going through YouTube and I think this is the actual recording of his voice. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm going to play it and we'll see. It's not as intimidating as the other one that has the voice changer on it, but it's still kind of creepy. So let's see what he has to say. Hello there, bitch. Are you comfortable right now? I doubt it. Wrists and ankles chained, gagged. Probably blindfolded. You are disoriented and scared too, I would imagine. Perfectly normal under the circumstances. For a little while, at least, you need to get your shit together and listen to this tape. It is very relevant to your situation. I'm going to tell you in detail why you have been kidnapped, what's going to happen to you, and how long you'll be here. I don't know the details of your capture because this tape is being created July 23rd, 1993 as a general advisory tape for future female captives. The information I'm going to give you is based on my experience dealing with captives over a period of several years. If at a future date there are any major changes in our procedures, the tape will be upgraded. Now, you are obviously here against your will. Totally helpless. Don't know where you're at. Don't know what's going to happen to you. You're very scared or very pissed off. I'm sure that you've already tried to get your wrists and ankles loose. No, you can't. Now you're just waiting to see what's gonna happen next. You probably think you're gonna be raped you're fucking sure right about that. Our primary interest is in what you've got between your legs. 
You'll be raped thoroughly and repeatedly in every hole you've got. Because, basically, you've been snatched and brought here for us to train and use as a sex slave. Sound kind of far out? Uh, I suppose it is to the uninitiated, but we do it all the time. It's going to take a lot of adjustment on your part, and you're not going to like it a fucking bit. But I don't give a big rat's ass about that. It's not like you're going to have any choice about the matter. You've been taken by force, and you're going to be kept and used by force. What all this amounts to is that you're going to be kept naked and chained up like an animal to be used and abused any time we want to, any way that we want to. So yeah, that's a little bit of snippet of David Parker Ray. I wonder if that's actually his real voice, because the one that I was listening to the other day, it was like a voice, like a voice, um, voice change rover, and it was like, hello, bitch, it was creepier than this, but this sounds more like his actual voice, because I think I heard him speaking one of this other video, so, yeah, it's not as creepy, though, but it is disturbing to hear some of the things that he says, so, if you want to hear the full thing, just go and listen to it on YouTube, but, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Secrets of a Serial Killer. David took his secrets of the victims' names and their whereabouts to the grave. So, he was a sick man. But, we will catch you guys in the next episode with a new killer secret. So, before I go, I want to give out a shout out to two of my resources. One, Project Dark Knight Horror which was the tape I just played you. And a lot of the information I got was from the Parcast Network Serial Killer Podcast. All right, you guys. I love y'all, and I will see you in the next episode. Bye.